Heating can be many things beyond mere fuel to our bodies, and one of those things is a connection to others. Join me as I explore this gastronomic connection with Capri Cafaro, author of United We Eat. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Our guest today is Capri Cafaro. She is founder of Humble Pie Home and Kitchen, a national cable news commentator and formerly minority leader of the Ohio Senate. Her new book, called United We Eat, features recipes and photos representing all 50 states with contributions from well-known political leaders from both sides of the aisle. She has really worked hard to use her food skills to bring people together in politics, which is something I think is really, really remarkable and a good thing. So welcome, Capri. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's, It's really a pleasure. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of your story, how you got here? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, you mentioned in the introduction that I uh, was the minority leader of the Ohio Senate. I spent 10 years uh, as a legislator representing the community that I grew up in and that I was born in, in northeastern Ohio. And during my decade in service, Prior to term limits, in Ohio, we have term limits, so that was it. (laughs) I've been out of office since uh, 2016 now. But during that time in office, I would do a lot of work across the aisle with my colleagues on uh, a number of different pieces of legislation. And when we would hit these kind of milestones in the legislative process, I would often bring in a pie uh, to share with the colleagues from across the aisle and their staff bringing our offices together, Democrats and Republicans, in a way to sort of build camaraderie and fellowship and celebrate how compromise actually gets things done and makes policy better. So it's, it's from that that the, the concept of United We Eat was born, that uh, you know, using food as a common denominator to bring people together, regardless of political affiliation, and also in the context at least of, of the cookbook, one of the things I wanted to do was use food as a storyteller as well to try to shed light on the um, cultural and, and culinary contours of the, the American story. So those two things together uh, is really what United We Eat is all about. How I started to cook and bake is, is really down to the fact that, you know, I'm Italian-American and, and grew up cooking with my grandmother and my sister, uh, us both learning how to cook and bake with uh, my grandmother on my mother's side. And, uh, you know, she was just as likely to make Italian classics as she was, uh, you know, American mid-century classics. So you could get pit sales as easily as you could get macaroni and cheese um, in my grandmother's household. So it was, again, growing up cooking and baking and, and I think also culturally being Italian-American. So there's a lot of emphasis on food and 
and bringing people together around the dinner table as well. Well, I share that with you. I'm half Sicilian on my mother's side, so it doesn't show up in my name, but I grew up with a, a grandmother. My nono is from Palermo, and so I Hello? know all about eating, <laughs> eating together. Right? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I will say this too, because uh, I think oftentimes, you know, and this I think goes for, for most um, cultures, Southern and Eastern European and, and other ethnic identities that, you know, it may not be, you may not find it in your name, so to speak, but it's, the, it's how culture is preserved and how it's passed down. And so, you know, I know that the, the Italians definitely dominate a lot of those times when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, the cultural significance of food and family. Well, I love the idea of using food in this way because I think that that's one of the really fabulous uses of food because obviously food is more than just fuel. One of the representatives from Louisiana to Congress, she formerly was, um, she's passed now, was Lindy Boggs. And she used to talk a lot about how she would bring food to committee meetings. I don't think she brought it to the house too often because there were lots of people in the house, but she would bring food to committee meetings and have people over to discuss politics. And she always talked about how it really made a difference because it made people act more civilly and it gave that underlying sense of hospitality to the conversation, which I think is really very important. Absolutely. And and I think that that is, and, and some of the stories that are shared in United We Eat, you see that as well. At, amongst the recipes, so there's 50 recipes. Um, there's one from the District of Columbia, and there's actually two from Maryland. So the reality is there are 52, <laughs> 52 recipes in the book, so, which there's a whole story behind it if you want to hear that of how I ended up with 52. But of those, uh, a little less than half were submitted by Democrat and Republican political leaders, current and former, uh, currently elected, formerly elected, party you know, sort of big wigs. And then the re- the remainder, the remaining 26 were adapted by me doing a lot of research on the individual states, their agricultural profile, their, whether or not there are any sort of iconic foods that exist there, if there were food brands that were founded there, those kind of things, trying to bring together something that was more unique to tell the, the individual stories than just, you know, I don't know, Philly cheesesteak or Chicago pizza. But I, I bring up the individual elected or, or political figures, because many of the stories that they share along with their recipes sounds exactly like what you're describing with uh, Libby Vox. And, and that is you know, bringing people together around the dinner table. It, is, it enables individuals to both let their guard down, but at the same time have a level of civility that is associated with coming together uh, around the dinner table. So I, I find that interesting because a number of the governors in particular in the book uh, speak in that same manner. Well, I was particularly taken with Patrick Kennedy's recipe and how this Italian recipe wound up in this Irish heritage uh, pantheon of recipes. It was really an interesting story, and it just tells you how eating the food reminds you again and again of the people who made it for you and who you eat it with. 
Right. Uh, no question. And I'm glad that you brought this up. Uh, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy represented the state of Rhode Island for two decades, I believe. And the story is actually quite interesting in the book. And he talks about this Italian-American gentleman who was a restaurant owner. And he would go to his restaurants frequently and then would be- develop a friendship and then ended up going to this gentleman's house, you know, most weeks, most weekends on Sundays to share in the Sunday dinner. We've already covered the fact that we have Italians and you have Sicilian roots. So, again, the whole Sunday dinner concept is something that is very pervasive in Italian and Italian-American culture. Patrick Kennedy ended up being part of that. And this gentleman ended up kind of adopting him as a second son. And there's some really interesting things that Patrick shares about his personal experience and how protective this guy was of of Patrick when he would get attacked in the press and that sort of thing. Um, And so... Patrick's recipe that he shared, you know, even though he is a Kennedy of, you know, of the Camelot family, and obviously they're very well known for being Irish, he shared an Italian recipe for this reason. And it's a pasta fazool, and, uh, you know, which is kind of a dense and hearty type of soup for those of, uh, folks, the listeners that may not be aware. Um, our pasta fazool is a little bit different than, than what this one is describing we don't really have this to me this recipe is a little bit more like uh, a minestrone almost mm-hmm. in the way that that it's constructed with more vegetables ours is a little bit thicker um the one that at least i grew up with with my grandmother making but the interesting thing about patrick's recipe is that he actually i think not only was it a personal story and connection because of you know this one restaurant owner that he befriended and vice versa but also was reflective of the very significant Italian-American population in Rhode Island. So, you know, you get a mix of these kind of recipes where some are sharing family recipes. For example, Kay Ivey and her gooey cake. She's Mm -hmm. the governor of Alabama. That's apparently her mother's recipe. But then you have some of these other recipes that are emblematic of the state. Michael Steele, uh, former Republican National Committee chairman, he shared the Smith Island 10 layer cake, which I had the, I've made a number of times and that is laborious. Let me tell you, I actually had to make it for a TV cooking segment once. And that was a lot of work for a three and a half segment, (laughs) but you know, the folklore behind Smith Island cake and, and the, the wives of sailors and how they, they ended up continuing to bake these layers of cake as a way to express their love and missing their spouse. It's, it's just, again, these recipes tell a larger story of our nation and our history and the the, uh, the resources as well um, and the immigrant patterns that each individual state has. No, you're absolutely right. So when you were deciding which recipes to put together, the ones associated with people who submitted them, did you have to go back to anybody and say, mm, this recipe really isn't going to make it? Did you have to put a lot of work into sort of organizing the recipe, because I know a lot of family recipes can be very loosely structured. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was was definitely a mixed bag. So, you know, there were certain people that I knew, like Congressman Patrick Kennedy, um, uh, former New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato, Michael Steele, who I've I've had a chance to, to know through some of my work with like the Bipartisan Policy Center. So there are some people that I knew more personally that I could just call upon and ask. So I kind of started there and then, you know, really cast the net wide to see 
who would respond. Some people never responded. Some people said no. People said yes and then wouldn't submit a recipe, no matter how much you try to, you know, get them to submit. Look, as a former elected official, I know that, you know, we all work on, you know, political time, which is its own dog. But so it really was a process to get people, number one, to agree, and then subsequently to submit their recipe and we asked for an accompanying story. There were a number of questions. There's, you know, kind of a written interview format that we provided these individuals with to share anecdotes about mm-hmm. how they used food to, to, to bridge the ideological divide and set that table for compromise. When it comes to the individual recipes, we did test them out to make sure that there wasn't anything funny and they would actually work and and work consistently. Mm -hmm. Um, There is one funny story about having to go back to the drawing board and get a new recipe from somebody. And that is directly related to the situation with Patrick Kennedy's Tuscaloosa recipe. So my member of Congress from Ohio, his name is Tim Ryan, a very good friend of mine. And, you know, he actually was, he was in the state Senate in the same seat as me before me. And so I've known him for a number of years. He's half Italian. He submitted his grandmother's pasta fazole recipe. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, and so I, it was easier for me to go to Tim. And, you know, it was, a, I mean, it, I've known Patrick for a long time, but it's a much more professional relationship. Yes. And it's hard to, you know, get people to, in their staff to get the stuff back. And so it was easier for me to text Tim Ryan and say, hey, can you please give me another recipe? I'm really sorry. I'm sure that, you know, your grandma Rizzi's uh, pasta is awesome. But you know what? We got a hole in the breakfast portion of this whole thing. <laughs> Maybe you want to think about that. And so he provided the zucchini and egg recipe. And, and it's for the folks in uh, our area, they were scratching their head like, why is this, like, how did Ohio not get, you know, and particularly with Tim Ryan, from our area, it's very heavily Italian American. How is not an Italian recipe? And so I've often told this story because it's kind of funny. But as we got a lot of these recipes in, started organizing them, and then subsequently trying to, you know, categorically figure out, okay, you know, where, you know, let's not get top heavy on desserts. Let's try to have some sort of method to the madness, and then with the remaining states that I do, you know, adapt and develop recipes for making sure that I was cognizant of where I needed to fill in those holes. And then also thinking about things like making sure that there is a little bit of variety with, you know, vegan and vegetarian stuff. So I, I was mindful of, of kind of a bigger picture as we were starting to organize the rest of this book with the basis being those submitted recipes and go and building around that. Well, what you're describing is really something that I wondered about when I was reading the book, because it is actually a really good read. Did you think of this primarily as a cookbook, or did you think of it more as a book that tells the story of the American food landscape? I know you probably are going to tell me, oh, it was both. But, I mean, there had to be something consistent in the way you looked at it to know how to proceed because obviously if it was just a political book or one that's just reflecting the soul of America, the level of detail that's put into the actual recipes maybe wouldn't be as important as, as um, telling the story. So how did you, how did you approach that? 
Sure. I mean, I would say that it, it is definitely a cookbook, obviously, because there is a recipe representing each one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. But it is much more than that. And I think that my objective was to tell the story of, uh, tell our nation's story through food, which I see, as I said, I think earlier, as a, as a silent storyteller that can tell us so much about American culture without, you know, using a word. And so, you know, trying to provide and, and build that context, which again is like, if it was just about, you know, sort of taking things that, you know, were obvious, okay, you know, whatever, key lime pie for Florida or, um, you know, uh, low country barbecue for North Carolina or whatever you you, know, you want to say, um, it would have been a much, it, it wouldn't have been as thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was really about trying to, you know, put together a, a history of, of these states and their agricultural and, and immigrant patterns. And so, you know, when that's how I um, approached the individual recipes. Now, I wrote an introduction, obviously, for this that talked about the role of food in politics, the role of food in, in bringing people together. And so, you know, there, there is definitely, I think, a two-pronged thing of showing food as, as a tool to bring people together and then using food as a storyteller about our nation. The recipes augment those themes, but, you know, I guess that it's, uh, in that regard, I guess the cookbook aspect is more of an augmentation to the overarching uh, objective of the book. Well, one thing. But that being that being said, I will definitely this will not be my last cookbook. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I think you really did capture well is the variety of the food of America. And um, anybody who would try to say, oh, this is what American food is by giving some simple example like the hamburger would just never be able to really, really reflect the food of the United States. I mean, it is really a mixed bag, not only with the geography changing so that the actual raw ingredients would be different and that sort of thing, but also just because... Um, we are such an immigrant nation. Right. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, who knew? I mean, not until I did research. I mean, I was having a hard time, for example, with Nevada, because in doing research on Nevada, everything was like, it's a, it's a Las Vegas buffet. I'm like, look, I know Nevada has to be more than a Las Vegas buffet. What do you got <laughs> me? And if finally, I, I came across the fact that there is a big Basque, Spanish Basque population in Nevada related to silver mining. Um, and it remains there today. There's still uh, a Basque uh, food festival every year. And so, um, and they also apparently in Nevada produce a, a large number of onions. So I, um, uh, the recipe that we did for that is a, a Basque um, uh, filet, basically, a, a, um, like filet mignon type of thing with caramelized onions. And so you know, it's those kind of really, off the wall things that I work very hard to try to find <laughs> um, instead, instead of just making Nevada shrimp cocktail, you know, but right. it, it's, I am just fascinated by the intersection of food and culture. Um, and I, I and very similar, similarly to what you're saying about, Oh, American food just being a hamburger or however people want to describe it. It was also, that was also the motivating factor behind the show that I now do on the heritage radio network called eat your heartland out 
which is about exploring the development of the foodways of the American Midwest, which um, is where I'm from, but also is highly overlooked as a region that has anything to offer uh, when it comes to the culinary landscape. And my whole thesis is that couldn't be further from the truth. So, Well, and we rely so much on the Heartland for so many things that we all eat every day. So it's really important. If we didn't have, say, Chicago, which I hope that you include in the heartland, just think, which it's just the crossroads for so many commodities that go everywhere. It's just wonderful. That's, that's true. And, and those, you know, the agricultural products, again, that intersection between agricultural production and immigrant uh, immigration and migration patterns really do inform the American Midwest, uh, but either the nation as a whole, kind of bringing us back full circle to, to the conversation about the cookbook. It's just, it really has been a joy to learn a lot more about each one of these states and um, what they have to offer and how their foodways in even just a small manner uh, have been shaped by those type of factors. Well, one of the recipes that I also really enjoyed was Donna Brazil's uh, gumbo. And it was a reminder to me of how long it takes to really put a good gumbo together because she she didn't cut right. she didn't cut any steps out. <laughs> um and, Yes, and, and for those of you on on the radio that cannot see the pictures of this, it's like two pages long of a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> but she's right. I mean you have to do all of that to just wrench every single particle of flavor out of each thing like the shrimp shells and all of that sort of thing and it just reminds me how resourceful people were especially when these recipes were first being developed a long time ago you really couldn't do anything like go to the grocery store and get an enhancer you know a flavor enhancer or anything like that you had to just do it the hard way and she obviously still does Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, her story is very interesting too. I mean, the, the gumbo recipe is one that, you know, was passed down from her mother. And you're right. It shows this reflection of the resources that were available and even maybe the, the economic environment that existed at the time where some of these recipes originated. Yes. Yes. And I eat gumbo a lot because I live here in New Orleans, but she reminded me of all of the work that goes into making gumbo. It's just really a lot. So we had also talked for a minute uh, before we started taping about Winston Churchill and the idea that Winston Churchill had this same concept that he applied during World War II, where he felt often that he was not in a position of power and that yet he needed the resources of the rest of the allies to protect England. And he used food as his way of bringing people to the table. And I thought that that was really apropos of this book because I think it is not something that everybody recognizes, but it really did civilized conversations, especially when he knew, and these were things that he wrote to his wife in letters, that he was afraid that sometimes there would be a lot of disagreement. And so it was important to have a really good meal. I just, I just love that. It's a great, 
a great way to think it, ahead. <laughs> I mean, it is it is fantastic, and you know, I I need to find this this book and and this information that you're referring to because I find it fascinating, and I think it's you know a very high profile and meaningful example of you know, using food to set the table for compromise and and using food as a tool of diplomacy, which. You know, I think, again, as maybe you were just mentioning, that it's implicit that, you know, people come together where maybe when you are sitting around a boardroom table or if you are interfacing with someone in a committee room uh, as, a, as a legislator or a member of Congress, and you are putting on that sort of brave face, that era, that persona um, that, you know, you're trying to project a level of power and control and when you bring you know those people into a different type of environment and setting you're enabling them again to you know sort of take that away take that kind of um you know facade and drop that facade uh, for something that is you know more equitable more meaningful more casual so to speak but at the same time also meaningful and i think that's why so many things do actually get done uh, maybe you know around the dinner table even more so than in the halls of congress sometimes well i also think that when you are the host that even if all it means is you've brought muffins to a meeting or something there is a certain amount of power that you get because you did this and people have to say thank you to you and people actually feel good about you because you've done this and it's just a very small gesture and it's almost a guerrilla action you know because it's not something that's very <laughs> ostentatious or anything like that I, I think it's just well, brilliant I, yeah and I, and I think that it it lets um as I was saying, I think it lets people guard down because, you know, when you are sending a signal of hospitality, you're also sending a signal of, you know, disarming and mm -hmm. warmth and caring. And so yet if there was a, a level of maybe tension or hostility that was implicit or explicit in the circumstances, you know, whether it's a simple gesture of bringing muffins or having, you know, hosting a dinner at your home. Either way, you're, you're saying we can share something. Here's something we can share. It creates a level, you know, I think it creates almost a level of equity, even as, as, and not necessarily as much as power. It's almost an equilibrium of power by saying we can all come together in one place and that it humanizes people. And that's one thing that I also say about these uh, recipes in the, in, the, in the book that you may not like someone's political views or affiliation or whatever, but you may actually like their recipe. And that's a start. And if you can start there and you can also humanize people by saying, well, I recognize that I have, you know, most families have heirloom recipes that are passed down generation after generation. And so somebody that you may just see on TV that you just, you know, dismiss, you know, I don't agree with that person all of a sudden, you know, you see, you see a different side of them. And then when you see a different side of them, you might be more willing to listen. Mm -hmm. You still may not agree, 
but at least you can find a place, I guess, common ground mm-hmm. and, and finding that um, politeness um, and, and steering away from what we see too often these days in, in division and dismissal. So, Capri, uh, United We Eat is the name of your cookbook, 50 Great American Dishes to Bring Us All Together. I love even the subtitle. Can you get it anywhere? Uh, right now it is uh, available on Amazon, both um, in, in hardback as well as in a Kindle edition. Later on, um, in the late summer and early fall, you will be able to get it at a variety of, of both independent um, and sort of corporate chain booksellers, but the pandemic has kind of delayed some of that stuff. But it is you will be able to get it outside of Amazon, um, you know, basically by the fall. But right now, uh, it's it's only available on Amazon, but soon it will be uh, in independent booksellers as well as other um, larger retail chains as well. I want to thank you for giving us your time today. It's been really fun talking to you. I think it's uh, so much more than a cookbook, and and I love that about it. Thank you so much. It really has been an honor. It's wonderful to hear you say that. And I certainly hope to have an opportunity to visit SoFab at some point. Um, I would love, I really am intrigued by the concept and everything that you have to offer. And I I hope to have a chance to make the trip down and, and experience it firsthand. I hope so too. Thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at our Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.